Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's nineteen. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, a very special edition of Podcast Like It's 1999. We're doing our first round table um, with TV writers and we have uh, quite an illustrious Zoom panel of, uh, of writers today. Um, we're talking about diversity in television. Um, before I get into kind of why we're doing this, by the way, I'm Kenny Nybart, one of your hosts. I'm Phil Iscove. Before I get into why we're we're doing this, uh, I'm going to go ahead and introduce the uh, kind of incredible panel we have. I'm pretty thrilled. Um, <laughs> among the panel is uh, Aaron Thomas, the showrunner creator of SWAT. He wrote in Friday Night Lights and Sleepy Hollow. Hi, Aaron. He's there? <laughs> He's here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's try the next one. Alexander yeah. Wu, uh, he created and show ran The Terror Infamy. Uh, writer on True Blood. It kind of has a big project coming up on Amazon you might have read about. Uh, Alex, thanks for joining us. It's on Netflix. On Netflix. Uh, yep. Netflix, you may have read about. Uh, Angela Harvey, <laughs> a writer on Teen Wolf, Station 19. Angela, the only guest we haven't had on before. It's great to have you. Hi, great to be here. Uh, Delandra, you may rem- remember her from our uh, like Placid episode. Delandra Mesa from Step Up and um, Zombie Nation, Z Nation, and so many other things. Nice to have you back, Delandra. Thank you. Good to be here. And rounding out, uh, back for at least the third time, Chuck Hayward, <laughs> uh, writer from Dear White People and Mixed Dish and a bunch of other shit. And he's also rewriting my favorite movie ever, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Hi, Chuck. Hello, Kenneth. 
Um, thank you guys so much for coming. Um, this is an open forum. This is about race and diversity in television. Um, everyone knows what's going on in the country at this moment. Um, the television industry has been kind of a fulcrum point for a lot of what is going on. But this was spur- this was this was uh, brought about because in 1999, kind of a similar thing happened in television. There's recently an article in the, in the L.A. Times uh, detailing what happened, and just to kind of you know give you a little context on what happened, I'm going to read from the article. So in 1999, Kwesi Mfume, who is the president of the NAACP, became upset after scanning the fall schedule. This is back when it was really only four major networks, and on all of the networks, there was 26 new shows. None had a prominent person of color in a leading or even prominent supporting role. Um, basically, what he said was when the television viewing public sits down to watch the new primetime show scheduled for this fall's lineup, they will see a virtual white- whitewashing in program. What happened was something that kind of reminds me of what's happening now. Um, diversity executives were installed at a lot of the networks. Um, there were more black uh, Latinx television led shows in the coming seasons, but not a lot. Diversity staff positions were added on television, which um, are with us to this day on staffs. And uh, NBC and, and, and ABC both put out a statement where they said, quote unquote, we need to do better. And uh, I guess I'll start with that because. Um, and feel free to, you know, any order you want to want to go in. But the the quote, we need to do better, comes up a lot these days. I hear it all the time uh, when people are called out for insensitivity or outright racism. And uh, what do you guys think when you when you hear that in 1999, the networks were in a very similar position than they as they were today, as they are today? Well, it's not surprising. <laughs> I mean, please. Yeah. Um, it's not surprising. Uh, we've definitely um, seen these same struggles. Like the, the diversity programs have started around then. And um, we just have found that the industry is not that hospitable to um, people of color. So, um, and it's not, even the phrasing we need to do better is a little bit grating because it's not about um, charity. It's not about doing better. It's about expansion. It's about, in a way it is doing better, but it's not um, a charitable outreach, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, If they're not seeing it as necessary, if they're not seeing it as um, critical to the bottom line, then it doesn't really matter. And that's really the issue that we're facing. That's why I Yeah, it's frustrating to feel like there's a box that they have to check off. And if they check off the box, then they've done their job and they can kind of wash their hands. And, and that's the end of their messaging and the end of their sort of responsibility. And then it's also crazy to hear things like that because, I don't know, I just wake up. You know, I just wake up. I just do my writing. I just do my pages. I don't think a whole lot I don't know it's difficult to express how I don't wake up feeling like um I'm owed anything that I haven't earned do you know what I mean or that uh I don't have the same skill set as any other writer in that room uh 
I assume if we're all in the room, we have a similar skill set. And so we're all capable of doing things. And it's weird to sort of be discussed as if that's maybe not the case. Or I don't know. It's difficult to put into words sometimes as well. I, I guess uh, as probably, I think, the oldest person in this room. I used to be the youngest person in the room, but now I'm <laughs> <laughs> my, my first job in television was 2001, so that's that's kind of close to 1999. And, and you know, I, I think back to that long ago, and it feels like the Ice Age. You know, it feels like, you know, a, a, a lot of people who are probably listening to your podcast don't remember 1999. Um, and so, you know, the idea of being four networks, um, commercials, you know, <laughs> I don't know if Netflix even existed. Amazon was selling books. You know, it was so, so different uh, um, that long ago. Um, and uh, th- I think that there were measures taken. There are. I remember a, a meeting I had with uh, a an Asian American exec um, who, who's still a friend of mine, and uh, we had dinner. And I asked, like, how many other Asian American writers are there in television? And he said, I, uh, less than twenty. You know, maybe less than ten. Yeah. Th- so. Wow. So. Yeah, in that case, you know, in that in that sense, uh, there has been a, a, a great deal of expansion. The challenges are different now. This is this is this is you know, um, by the standards of, of what the what the landscape was in 1999. I think progress has been made, but the landscape is completely different here in 2020. Can I ask? Yeah, I, I, I have a, a qu- sorry. Yeah, please, please. No, I was going to say, I think that it's uh, competition seems to be what moves the needle more than um, anybody doing better on a, on a, in a system that, that's clearly established. For example, um, when it was just the four networks, even when it was three networks, then Fox came along and they were the network of black people. <laughs> like that's who hired black people. That's who, that's who, uh, that's who made shows starring black people. And then Fox became mainstream. And then it was UPN and CW and they became whatever WB at the time. And then they got more mainstream. So then when these new outlets start to come out, then that's who again will put on shows about people of color because they, they aren't having to operate within the same paradigm. And then it's just, you just sort of check your watch. Like, okay, it's been seven seasons of this new purveyor of content doing well. Bye bye black people. That seems to be the, uh, that seems to be the trend. So I guess, Doing better includes not forgetting that you had that imp- imperative at the beginning to be more inclusive uh, and, and sort of just and, and, and staying the course and, and just asking yourself, like, you know, like uh, Mr. Dr. Fume's uh, article, like, does does this network schedule, does this slate look like America? It's pretty fucking simple. Like, that, it, it, it's not about, like, uh, I think, like, Andrew, or no, I'm sorry, Delandra said, you're not, we're not expecting anything more, anything we didn't earn. It's just, does does this look like America? I, I also sort of wanted to, to ask the question about, you know, the, the, the situation that we seem to be in now a little bit more is that casting seems to be more diverse, but we're not seeing much progress behind the camera. Um, I, I'm sort of thoughts on. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on on that and and sort of the quote unquote progress that we've made in that regard. Do you guys remember that um, Project Greenlight? Uh, yes. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the whole story right there. Um, there's a, there's like a habit in Hollywood, I think, and it's not just Hollywood. I think it's been like in a little bit of an American um, problem up until the George Floyd incident that we've had um, and the movement that's followed of um, colorblindness and thinking that we were post-racial. And, um, I think that's what that was rooted in. And, and then, you know, um, to be fair, like when... Grey's Anatomy launched in like 2003 and it was like all these people of color and you didn't talk about race. I mean, that was progressive then, but you can't tell those, you can't shape a full person without actually writing for their experience. You can't just like throw a dark skinned body in front of the camera and think that, you know, now we understand black people. So um, it's time to move on. Time to do better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I, listen, I, I'm I'm one of few people that that recognizes this. I think, but like I, I don't think that it is some like mustache twirly sort of plot by white showrunners to not hire people of color. I think they have implicit bias where they tend to hire people that remind them of them, or they hire people who have helped them along the way, or people they know. Um, and a lot of white people, and this was a huge surprise to me, a lot of white people don't know many black people or don't know many people, Latinx people or don't know many Asian people. And so they're just hiring who's in their cell phone, basically. And that is, and then, and then it's like, oh, and we have a slot to fill. We have a diversity slot, so we'll put somebody in there. And the problem with that is like, it, it kind of assumes that there's only, you, you only really need one voice of color in a room. And once you've met that, quota, then you're good to go. You'd never have to think about it again. Um, and that's, that's not even taking into consideration, like, is that person's voice going to be heard? If you hire a diversity writer as a staff writer, then there's still that hierarchy that goes on inside the room where that writer may not feel empowered to speak up as much, not because of their race, but because of their rank. Um, and also they're just, I've, and this is something I've experienced when I was a staff writer, like if you're, if you're pitching to a room full of people who don't have the same cultural like guideposts that you have, then your pitch, which may be valuable or may be good, uh, isn't being received because the people aren't, they're, they're not operating from the same uh, starting position. So, uh, I, uh, sorry, sorry, Chuck. No, no, I was good. I was good. I want to ask a question on that particular point, because I do think that there's been this idea forever and it's been, um, been brought up by several of you that uh, it is a box that's, that, that's being checked. I'm interested, because you've all worked in television over the last you know, 10 to 20 years. <clears throat> you probably often found yourself as the only person of color, or probably in Angela Delandre's case, I know this is true for you, Delandre, the only woman in the room. Um, what's that like where you're the only one expected to carry the mantle for an entire race or an entire uh, gender or even an entire incredibly large group of people, people of color, which I've seen happen in rooms before? It's difficult because I think that a lot of times the point of view defaults to white and particularly white male. And that becomes like, well, this is what the norm is. So anything else is sort of color commentary, you know, like outside the norm. Um, that's cool to know. Like, that's cool to know that that's how you guys feel. I remember doing a horror uh, project and bringing up, um, you know, the 
this moment's very disturbing to me, and I think it's going to be more disturbing to the audience than you guys are counting on, and it might change the way that they feel about this this female character permanently because she's being abusive towards a child. And they were sort of joking about it, and then the the it became about suddenly. Well, you're a mother. That's why you feel that way because most you know moms would think that, but most people watching the show wouldn't think that same idea. And you're sort of going like, other people don't have kids. I don't. Or other people don't have kids. <laughs> you know. So it runs the danger of like when you do speak up and say something, they go, "Oh, well, that's just." coming from the diversity camp or the mom camp or the woman camp or whatever it is that they've decided to put you in that camp. And you really have to be, you know, sort of strict about like, it, it turns you into the person who has to speak up over and over and over again. And then suddenly you're that one in the room. And I will say in that case uh, of when that happened, the showrunner jumped in there and said to the other writers, like, she's here for I want to hear her perspective at all times, so don't silence her. So he was very good about doing that. But you run the risk of being the problem person in the room all the time. You do. I would always turn it into a joke, and then after a while it just became the same joke. Where I, <laughs> I would hear a pitch and I'm like, it'll go away. And then as it starts to pick up steam, I would have to like jump in the crowd. You know, speaking for all the non-white and female people for the world. <laughs> I mean, I just, that was like the phrase I would throw out every time I was about to um, alternate, offer an alternate pitch or just sometimes you just got to shoot something all the way down. And you hate to be that person in the writer's room, but, you know, it really depends who you're working with if that's going to land. I had a friend come to me and tell me that she had a problem person in the room. And when I dug and asked some questions, I could tell that's exactly what was going on. And I made my friend cry because I was like, you're forcing your, you're forcing this employee to be the one that's having to fight for herself all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's really tough. When there's no other allies in the room. It's that's a really tough situation. And I think that that leads to some of the attrition, like some of the people who come in through the diversity programs and, either got stuck or repeating titles or just got sick of fighting for themselves all the time and then decided to go back to medical school or whatever. We're out mm-hmm. <laughs> and this speaks to what Chuck was talking about, about, you know, that, that the showrunner can dictate the culture of the room, right? You know, that if the showrunner wants to be welcoming to everyone's thoughts and opinions or not, or the exact opposite, you know, they kind of have the prerogative to do so. And there's a great deal of pressure uh, on a showrunner, you know, to make, make the show successful so that implicit bias of hiring people you know um uh, um really percolates uh to the top so it it, it is a question of uh, of diversity at the showrunner level which has gotten more and more uh challenging because as the, there are more and more shows but they become more and more top heavy with with smaller and smaller episode counts um, you have smaller and smaller staffs. I personally like a smaller staff. I don't. I don't love having twelve people in a room. So I'm part of that too. I, I like a smaller staff. And with a smaller staff, that means people are trying to get in uh, at, at the staff writer level. Um, you know, there's there's fewer opportunities, um, and, and you have more people. You know, at, at co EP or EP or supervising who who um, uh, who are getting those jobs. Um, and they tend to be people that your show, you know, your showrunner knows. So until at the showrunner level, there is 
um, a, a greater diversity and representation. I'm not sure um, we're going to see that uh, across tests. I do think it's trending in the right direction, for what it's worth. Yeah. Um, Aaron, can I ask you a question specifically in terms of the, the broadcast situation and, and, and perhaps CBS specifically, but just sort of how it's how you feel it's progressed or not progressed or how that's changed? Well, first of all, I want to make sure you can hear me. We can hear you. Okay. <laughs> um, I would say, I mean, in, in the most general sense, uh, Alex is right in that you have an elimination of the middle class in essence right now. So that you have, we're in peak TV, so there's more opportunities in theory, but there's less opportunities for that mid-level producer you know, writer who used to be pretty standard on staffs. That's no different on uh, broadcast um, shows as well. I would say, you know, I'm an optimist, so I share some of the optimism that things are trending in the right direction, meaning like the gross number of overall opportunities are there. I haven't seen the percentages change very much since 1999. So even though overall there are more TV writers, yes, total, are the percentages of writers of color, the percentages of women writers greater? I haven't seen it move very much. Like when the, the WGA comes out with their numbers every year, the percentages are pretty pretty similar to what they were in 1999. So when we talk about, you know, we have to do better. Honestly, I don't care what the words are. I think, you know, you can put out a press release and you can say many great things. We want world peace. We want to end hunger. You can say that. That sounds awesome. But until the percentages change, until we actually see like tangible evidence, then the words don't matter. Um, as far as like increasing that middle class, though, a lot of that is also on the showrunners. I do feel like showrunners of color, if you're serious about actually improving the situation, it's not enough to just have a successful show. You do have, to me, that added responsibility of if you recognize writers of color who are promising help to champion them, because right now we don't have infrastructure in place to help that, and that's part of the issue. Uh, when I spoke with CBS several weeks ago, when all of this was first getting started, that was my recommendation to them, was that you're going to need to increase the ranks of people of color at the, the level of talent, content creators, but also the level of people who can actually greenlight projects. And without having an infrastructure in place that allows like a staff writer or story editor to actually be able to climb up the ranks, it's going to be really hard to have writers of color who are also showrunners someday. The problem is, is that right now you may have many showrunners who mean well, but have no idea how to champion a, a writer of color who's at a lower rank, even if they mean well. You know, I look at a show like, uh, there's a show called The Undercoverage, right? It was years ago on, on NBC starring Boris Culture and Google. Two of the most beautiful people on the planet, both of them people of color. And then I look at the writing staff and I'm like, that's very little to do with the people that I see on screen. Um, in a way, that's a writing equivalent of blackface. Unintentionally, perhaps, but that, that's the fact. So if you want to actually improve the ranks of people who actually have power to green light and actually control content, you're going to need to actually give the people of today, the writers who are coming in, a chance to actually move up that ladder to get you know, to get in that position. So can I, for, for our listeners sake, you know, what is required of nurturing a career from staff writer up the ranks? You know, what, what does that entail and, and how can people be doing that more? In my position and, and, you know, I came up 
I've been writing since 1999 myself, so I'm not sure that you're the oldest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I like the fact that you assume that I'm much younger. I love that. So let's keep what I would say is this, though, from what I was seeing, because I came up the ranks, I was an intern, I was an unpaid intern, I came up the ranks as a writer's assistant, came all the way through, staff writer, story editor, all the way up. And what is required is, I would on every major network, is to have a dedicated person or team, even better, who is actually paid to scout and look out for talent that is at your network that, that seems promising. And to make sure that you don't lose that talent to go off back to medical school or to go off to another network. You know, if you're ABC and you recognize that we have four promising writers of color coming in as a staff writer. And, and we know that the, the, right now we can't just leave it to our showrunners to necessarily help them. Then us as a network can also look at that and go, if we want the next Shonda Rhimes, why don't we grow that Shonda Rhimes in-house? Why don't we recognize that any of those four could be our next Shonda Rhimes? And why don't we make sure that if that if it doesn't work out on this show, let's not assume that that writer was the problem. Let's look at that closely. We thought that that writer was talented. That writer has a good head on their shoulders. Maybe that writer placed in a different environment may flourish. Um, ultimately, that's a that's an investment that could pay off for that network if you're you know if you're willing to invest a little. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah, and taking think- that point back to um, Chuck's point earlier, it's like there is a lot of money being left on the table. Like it's, it's a tried and true business model to launch your network targeted toward people of color because they know that's an underserved market. They're going to watch. They're going to build you up. And then, But then there's also this idea of what's prestigious. And so once you have that money under your belt, they tend to go to, to quote-unquote, more mainstream audiences and do different things, either chasing awards or chasing whatever kind of prestige that they are looking for. And so then once again, that audience and those writers and actors get left behind. I will say this too, like off of the UPN model and, and the WB model of, of yesteryear, I compare that in a way to what features used to do with like New Line Cinema, where you always had kind of the young upstart, you know, company mm-hmm. who didn't want to spend a dollar on a project, but they'll spend 25 cents and make a profit each time. That's kind of what UPN and WB did. And as soon as they got a little bit of new money, you know, they moved out of that neighborhood, so to speak. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that happens. The thing is, though, is that I left to, the business left to its own devices. We have 100 years of evidence of this. And in TV, you have about 70 years of evidence of this. 
they're never going to act based on ethics and morals. It's never the, the business is never going to wake up and go, this is the right thing to do. Right. <laughs> it's not going to be based on what are the business trends. And from the business side, I see an audience that's changing. We, for years, we had the baby boomers who were the, you know, for the most part, the took up the, the, you know, were pretty much the majority as far as TV viewership was concerned. Now you're starting to find that Gen X generation starting to take over. And I do think future generations of TV goers, not even future, really present, are going to demand more complexity from what they watch. You know, you can't get away with Murder, She Wrote across the board anymore. You know, you're going to want there to be some content creators and material, I think, that reflects our world. Because I think the audience will demand it more than maybe our parents or grandparents did. So I have a question I want to ask based on all of this stuff, because I've always kind of felt like, yeah, the conversation was, it's important to have people have opportunities for people at the lower levels, obviously to start out, but then they're running a gauntlet. And I've seen it a lot now. Um, where you are just running a gauntlet of, of swinging on a vine from one show with a white showrunner to another show with a white showrunner where you're the only diverse person on staff and it's a very difficult situation. Um, so I felt like, yeah, incredibly important to have black executives and other executives, uh, pe- other people of color at the executive levels throughout studios and networks. Incredibly important to have people of color uh, show running shows and creating their own shows. But something that I'm kind of feel like is being left out of the conversation right now is how do we speaking as a white person how do you deal with the white showrunners because they're not going anywhere either the, my, my my feeling about this conversation is you have what will essentially be let's say let's say tv looks like america and you have white people running 55 percent of the shows those 55 percent of the shows are not for white people only the staffs can't be for white people only. So what do you do there um, in terms of making those staffs more um, more welcoming, more comfortable for people of color, often more comfortable for women? Because I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to just um, act like those shows are just lost causes. No, um, I, I'm a co-chair for this group called the Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity. And those are the kinds of questions that we're tackling. We'll have showrunner roundtables talking about how to make your room more hospitable for your BIPOC writers. Um, Those are conversations that people are going to have. And and, uh, frankly, we're going to have to have a lot of white people sit in some discomfort for a while. And that's something that, you know, a lot of folks are not particularly keen to do. But um, for the good of their own shows, for the good of their careers, for the good of the business, they're going to have to kind of realize that whiteness does not equal neutrality and that BIPOC folks are bringing something real to the table. Um, we're going to do these fact sheet projects for authentic storytelling because that's a whole other object. That's a whole other conversation about the topic of our topics of our stories. Um, so hopefully start some conversations about that as well. Um, but yeah, to uh, what Delandra was talking about earlier, the question that you asked about being the only women are the only person of color in the room. We have to have some real conversations about how we can do better on those conversations and those situations. I think, Kenny, the, the, the challenge is going to be to find, you know, um, I, I, I don't think 
you know, obviously every every white showrunner is a monster. Uh, we want to find find uh, showrunners who can uh, who can run their shows and and uh, and and uh, treat their staffs uh, compassionately and thoughtfully. And it's a, a question of, of of finding those people. Uh, the, the job of, of of running a show, I mean, is an insane amount of pressure, more than any one human being really should ever be subjected to. Uh, and it brings out the worst in people. Whether it's uh, it, it makes you snippy, or it may, or it brings out uh, your uh, your most controlling aspects, or your racism. Uh, those things tend to come out when you know, when when people are are, are put uh, in, in that uh, in that position. And I, I, I do think it's uh, you know the people who who have those jobs. It's incumbent to find people who can who who can actually do the job, um, you know, without all of this toxicity that, uh, that, uh, that can come out. I, I, I don't know how in a, in a, uh, in the landscape where there's more content than ever, you have people who are becoming showrunners right out of the box. And so mm-hmm. you're taking a big chance sometimes. Um, th- th- this, this speaks to my own bias of having been on staff for 13 years before I ever ran a show. So, you know, there, there are other people who, who don't feel that way, but you know, there, there's with so many shows out there. Inevitably, you're going to have showrunners who have far less experience, and you don't know what you're going to get. So there, there are there are challenges uh, uh, ahead of us in finding how finding someone in charge who can who can actually uh, grow their staffs and and mentor their uh, their staffs and not uh, drive them out of the business. In part, um, Kenny. I mean, the first part of the question, I'm, I'm actually really happy about because if we're in a world where only 55% of the showrunners are white, you know, that's... Yeah. You know, you got you already won! <laughs> if, that's, if that's the biggest problem, like, how do we deal with 55% of the... 55%, it's like, that's that's never happened before, like, in any yeah. facet of this business. It's like telling me the dragons exist and there are marshmallow clouds. That would be It'd be interesting. It'd be awesome. Um, that said, though, I mean, it's not going to be just one thing, right? It's like, it's not just a white thing either. It's it's all of us, you know, and that, you know, you, you in, a, in theory, in a business where you have more people of color, um, more people of different walks of life who exist in all facets, be it not just writers, but also cast, also producers, also executives, also camera people, you know, also stunt people, the more you increase diversity in theory in all walks that you would think that the more everyone is now not only used to dealing with people from different walks of life, but also you have those people in your life. So I think someone said before, part of the issue, and again, it's not just a white people issue. There are black people I know who all they know is black people. You know, that can be an issue too. Um, But the more you actually can say, you know, you go home at night and you're talking to your significant, significant other and you can't claim that you don't know anybody of color and you've never had a significant conversation with someone of color, that's where it's harder to really kind of think outside of your own experience. But you increase diversity, I think, all around and, and I, I think you will find better results. That 55%, if there is a world where that exists, probably has been exposed to more different types of people than the current 90%. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I, there's no way to really legislate this, but it, it's kind of um, to Alex's point. Like, it's a it's a huge responsibility show running. You just have a thousand different plates to keep spinning at all times, and there's just one more plate now to add, which is like, am I creating a diverse environment, and am I creating a non toxic environment? Like, that's and that's part of the job now. Like, and if you can't handle that, then maybe maybe you shouldn't be the, the head of a small company, which which you essentially are as a showrunner. But here's, here's where that gets tricky, though. Hollywood, from the very beginning, has always loved the myth of the difficult genius mm-hmm. artist. That's, that, is, that, is, that goes all the way back to D.W. Griffith back in the 1920s. I don't think that's going anywhere, honestly. And I, I think that there is kind of this, there is this myth that in order for someone to be a true genius creative that we love being around, there's got to be at least an ounce of asshole in them. You know, if not more. <laughs> and somehow they're not a genius creator if there isn't an, an ounce of like eccentricity. Um, or, yes, you know, more than, a, than an ounce of asshole. Now, that said, yes, in theory, like you, you want good people, you want moral people, you want ethical people in charge. Short of that, I just want, you know, at the very least, the right to have different types of assholes. You know, like, hey, mm-hmm. look at who this is an asshole buffet. So we we unfortunately do have to wrap this up soon, but before we do, I want to hit on something Angela said because I think this is the other kind of element of this that um that doesn't get enough play, which is okay, more shows representative of more experiences, more people in this country in this world. But uh, different kinds of shows, right? Different kinds of shows showing different kinds of experiences, the content. So I kind of want to go around and ask each one of you what, if you could wave a magic wand, what kind of show or what show would you want to see on TV that currently you feel like is it on TV or isn't even pitchable? Anyone, feel free to start. I saw a couple of a couple of grimaces, <laughs> a couple of nods, a couple of nods. <laughs> so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask Chuck to start. <laughs> oh, I know shit. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what? I, <laughs> anybody else want to start? Maybe I'll start. I'll start. Okay. okay. A couple of shameless plugs <laughs> of uh, one pilot I have in development about a black girl who becomes a country music star. One pitch that's going out about um, rich black folks in haunted townhouses in Harlem. Um, buy the buy my show. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch both of those. Absolutely. <laughs> Chuck, you got anything? I, no, no, here's, the, here's the thing. I feel like everything I think of, I'm like, oh, that does exist in this form or another. So like, I, I guess like a um, I, sort of like a, a Love, Simon type show, but with black people. I know that, that this, uh, that this or Love, Victor is, is uh, Latinx, but uh, yeah, I guess uh, I, I have not seen, and I, I don't think you can count Moonlight in it because it was not that um but like something that's a little bit more uplifting for young black queer people 
I just want to see shows that normalize seeing brown faces on TV that look like me and my family. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, we're super Latino, and, you know, and we're manning a taco truck. And I mean, but I, I mean, I love taco trucks and all that. But, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily need to be that. And and um, that's all I want. I just want more. I just want more, 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 more all the time, more and uh, more diversity of what <clears throat> kind of shows have people like me in it and you know it doesn't need to be the latina show it can also be a a show about americans who are also latina and i think that more and more i we are seeing steps forward and we're seeing more of that i feel very encouraged about the future of representation to to that point you know do you feel as though there's a lack of nuance in the way that culture is handled sort of, you know, in terms of diversity and, and, and that lack of subtlety is a problem. I think it's natural for people to sort of say like, well, why should this show be Latino? You know, um, I think it's natural for people to sort of ask those questions, but then, uh, and I think that those shows are important as well. Um, But I think when I, I just like a diversity of options. Maybe I want to watch some trash. Maybe I want to watch straight up trash that has brown people in it. You know, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, maybe I want to watch prestige that has in it. I just want the same opportunity of failure that white people have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just want to see it. The first, first out of the gate, you just want to see it on the screen. And then at 2.0, we can get to the nuance. Yeah, just having the diversity there is is, is, is is the first step. I mean, I, I, I think the conversation in 1999 uh, in, in diversity was was pretty much uh, about race, and uh, and and now as we get close to 20, well, we are in 2020. You know, uh, diversity can speak to uh, many other uh, 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 groups of people, um, and and we have shows like this close and uh, and. Um, uh, um, atypical that you know, uh, deal, you know people with disabilities, which is the kind of diversity that was not talked about in 1999. Um, uh, there's uh, um, trans uh, representation was not talked about in 1999. So you know th- there are experiences that we had no thought of 20 years ago. Uh, at least if you weren't you know if you weren't trans or a, a person with a disability at the time. Um, so th- there's, there's other, you know, there's other places to reach, uh, and probably things that I can't even think of right now in my uh, middle-aged brain. <laughs> but point, Leah, oh, sorry, go ahead, Aaron. No, there's, there's the greater variety now than ever. I mean, certainly in comparison to 1999, it's like between Pose, and Rami, and I Will Destroy You, and, you know, there's, there are definitely... You know, I, I do feel in that regard, and not, not even to mention like Lovecraft, like, you know, there are genres now being explored with different voices that weren't explored before. I think as Alex kind of indicated, um, the next level will be is like actually being able to look around and, and choose more than one, you know, that, that mm-hmm. is in each of those genres. So, you know, when we have a day where there's five different poses and you can actually compare and contrast mm-hmm. in the same way you would with like Succession and Billions, right? On the surface, those are both about really rich, rich white dudes, right? You know, but they're very different when you look at the execution. 
You know, I look forward to a day where I can look at Pose and like two other shows that kind of deal with roughly the world, but in very different ways and be able to then have a very intelligent conversation about how the artists actually approach the material mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, all right, that's the one show for that genre. Lovecraft is the one show with people of color that deals with, you know, horror slash fantasy. Uh, when there's more than one, then you know we've made some progress. Mm-hmm. I think that goes for everything. I think that's I think that's a that's kind of a big um, kind of a big exclamation point in the whole thing. It's it's the more than one thing um, that I don't think people understood in 1999. Uh, well-meaning people thought that one got the job done when it's been clear to me in my like 15 years of experience on shows without a person of color and it's sometimes without even a woman in the room um and shows where i was the only white person in the room um one just doesn't get the job done uh at all so um i hope that at least is something that changes just to aaron's point in front of the camera behind the camera in the writer's room i think that's one thing that's different between um 1999 and now is that in 1999, um, Fonsai was coming from the outside to Hollywood and telling them, you know, making some strong salient points, but he was on the outside. And now the call is coming from inside the house. So I do think that things are going to change. And I want to echo, Angela had said it earlier about discomfort and sort of the importance of discomfort. And I feel like we're in a moment of discomfort, but change doesn't happen without that. You can't be comfortable and, and pass yeah. through to a sort of different reality. You have to be uncomfortable. And that, that's, that's for everyone across the board. So I think as uncomfortable and as turbulent as times seem right now, in, in a weird way, I find that um, pop, like uh, encouraging or, um, what, how do I say it, positive, um, hopeful maybe. That, that the discomfort will lead to something better on the other end. Yeah, and I think uh, part of that discomfort, I've, I've, I'm sure you guys have all heard of this, the, the, uh, the idea that it's impossible for white males to get uh, hired as staff writers in Hollywood right now. Uh, I've heard that complaint countless times. So I think that's a huge difference between... 2020 and 99, whereas uh, in 99, we were saying, hey, can, can some of us get the job? And now the narrative, and I don't think it's a correct narrative. I think it's a false narrative that's propagated by uh, agents who are not able to get the job done, getting their clients hired. I also think it is uh, partly uh, white mediocrity being recognized for what it is and not uh, being rewarded as it has been in the past. And yeah, that is uncomfortable. And sorry. <laughs> It's it's the agents, uh, to, at least as far as I'm concerned. It's like <laughs> in 1999, white people said the same thing. It's impossible to get a staff job as a white person. Now at least agents can be like, oh, else you know, it's not your fault. <laughs> You're great. It's society's fault. <laughs> so, it's all these it's all these brown people coming in and yeah. taking your jobs. I know. Go to wall. That's right. <laughs> Well, that's, I guess on that that's that's always kind of been the American way, though, right? Like that's that's bigger than Hollywood. That's America does that well. Whether that's auto workers, whether that's you know, I mean, I become a, a bigger student of history the older I get, and it's something that I hope also, like as young writers come in that that they're able to tap into is that 
the good thing about your podcast and talking about 1999 is I hope people actually pay attention to what happened in 1999. Or else you're doomed to literally repeat what happened. So yeah. go back and look at what the climate was in 1999. Look at what the climate was in 1989. Look at what, what the TV industry was like in 1979. And you'll start to notice like there's certain patterns. It is the kind of like the matrix at the end where it's like, all right, we've got to eliminate all those TVs, right? We can't just keep doing the same damn thing over and over thinking like this is the first time. Right. you know, it's like yeah. what's, we have to actually the good thing is, is like right now, because there's conversations being had and we actually have things in print that these uncomfortable conversations that are being had can continue, you know, in a year where things have slowed down because of COVID. This will be hard, harder to sweep under the rug the way it would have been in 1999. 1999 would have been on to the election, talking about football, whatever. Yeah, and This would probably be out of the zeitgeist by now. Right, it would be very conveniently just evaporated. Now, this time next year, I expect people fully to be pointing at what'd you say, ABC, about diversity? <laughs> what was that? Yeah. It says right here that you said we're going to do this. What you, you know what I mean? Like the bills do. Like I, that's what I expect. You know, and not for people to simply just conveniently ignore it the way they have in the past. Well, you know, you can you can hope, but that's where my optimism. Well, guys, we have to wrap it up, unfortunately. Um, we can go for another five hours as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but um, thank you guys so much, Chuck, Delandra, Aaron, Alex, Angela. Uh, we really appreciate your time and your thoughts on this. Um, of course, we will love to have you all back for other movies in the future. But um, for now, thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you to Ernie. Thank you to Emilio. Um, Jan, uh, Phil, um, see all you guys uh, next week on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, all of you. I really, really appreciate it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.